Welcome to the Nobody Told Me That podcast. My name is Teresa Duncan, and my goal is to share information that you probably weren't thinking about. I love preparing my friends for situations that may come completely out of the blue. I also want to share with you many of the tidbits I picked up over the years. If you absolutely have to tune out before the end of the show, make sure you check out the show notes for more details and information on today's topic. And thank you so much for making me a part of your day. All right, we are back with another episode of Nobody Told Me That. Welcome back. I have a special guest here. I have Dr. Suzanne Ebert here. She is the VP of Dental Practice and Relationship Management from the ADA Practice Transitions. How are you this morning? I'm doing great, Teresa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Me too. I'm super excited only because, and my audience is used to me being super excited, but I am super excited this morning because... I have a lot of questions about acquisitions, these transitions that happen. My audience typically finds out about all of this action after the fact. And so there's a lot of mystique around that. And I I mean, we'll get into staff and all of that. But I imagine the landscape with COVID has changed a little bit for buying, selling practices. What are you seeing? Yeah, the landscape has actually changed quite a bit over the last year. We are now seeing more owners that are wanting to accelerate their timeline to sell. On the flip side, we're seeing a number of former associates who maybe got let go during COVID and they want to take control of their dental career now. And they're looking to purchase practices. We're also seeing there's a little bit of a shift in dynamic now from very urban markets to the smaller market, and even some interest in some of those rural communities, which just excites the heck out of me, because we really want to help address some of those access to care issues. These practices in these smaller towns were just closing their doors, and now we're able to find some buyers for them. That part of it has been really exciting for us. Well, and you have a background for working with the Federally Qualified Health Center, so you know underserved areas and how helpful this is. I feel what you're feeling too, because I I can't tell you how many times I'll go to a class and they'll say, I can't do this and this because I'm the only dentist in town. Everybody will hear about it. And I'm thinking, wow, how does that feel to be the only dentist in town? But what that really means, like you said, is access to care is affected in that way. Do you think fondly of your FQHC days? (laughs) You know, I'm on the third iteration of my dental career right now. So (laughs) I think fondly of all the stages of my career. I was a, I started up a practice from scratch about a year and a half out of school. They told me I could never do it. I said, you know what? Don't tell me I can't do something because I'm going to. (laughs) (laughs) I did that for about 12 years. It was entirely fee for service, more boutique type practice. But then I got some, I had some health problems forced me to sell, unfortunately, and pursued the second iteration of my dental career, which was the dental director at a federally qualified health center. And that's where I got to work with senior dental students. I got to really serve a community that was desperately in need of care. I did mission trips. I got heavily involved in dental association leadership. It was just a lot of fun. And then I heard about uh, ADA practice transitions and realized that this could be a another career for me, another career path. 
And what I loved about it was it is serving needs of dentists and the community. So we can work on keeping some of those practices open, which addresses my access to care passion. And then also the dental students, when they were coming out, they all said, I don't have any options. I don't know what to do with my career. And I said, you have options. Let's find them for you. And now I can do that on a national level. And that's really exciting for me. So the move out of the urban areas, I'm guessing we've talked about this on the podcast with other guests, but I'm guessing it has to do with the fact that people aren't necessarily wanting to live in the big cities or everybody's working from home. So the traffic isn't there. Is that what you're seeing? I believe that is what's driving it. Mostly the cities aren't quite as open. The urban centers aren't as busy. People aren't there. So those practices are recovering at a slower rate than their smaller market counterparts. The last I heard from uh, Health Policy Institute data was showing that our urban practices are recovering close to 90, 93%. And our, I'm sorry, did I say small market? For Yeah, I was going to say, I think you meant small market. <laughs> Thank you so much for correcting me. As soon as that came out, I said something's not quite right. No, the smaller market is recovering at over 90%, and the urban markets are still hovering around 73%. Such a disparity. Holy Mm -hmm. cow. Wow. Well, and listeners, too, uh, one of the resources she just mentioned, the the Health Policy Institute, you can find it on the ADA's website. They have a lot of great research, and, and that's one of my resources when I speak to you all about insurance and stats and all that. You should check them out. And if stats aren't your thing, that's fine. You checked it out once and you can move on. But if stats are your thing and numbers are your thing, you'll really get, you'll get a kick out of it. Let's move on from the urban thing. That's, but again, I could talk for a long time on that because I'm fascinated with these demographic changes. I mean, it's not often you see such huge shifts right in front of you. You know, you see it over time, but to see it happening right in front of you, I think is, is pretty fascinating. So the owners that, are selling these practices in the urban areas, are there buyers or they're just taking a huge loss on that? This is a tough one for me because I am seeing right now that the practice values are a little bit depressed Mm. as compared to what they were. That really does bother me just on a, you know, more of a a professional level. It's disturbing to see that trend. And I understand why it's there. It's because 2020 was not a good year for Mm. most dentists. So the docs are getting their valuations in late 2020 or early 2021, and they're coming across a little bit lower. We also have the shift now with the banks where you used to have 100% financing for a practice. It was the norm. It was starting to change a little bit. And now, depending on your bank, they'll still do 100% financing as long as the purchase price is uh, acceptable. And it's taking a little bit more time in underwriting. So things are taking a little bit longer. I would recommend that anybody who's looking to purchase a practice, start talking to your lenders as soon as you think you might want to purchase a practice. Make sure that your credit score is good. Make sure that all of your finances are in order. Understand your monthly budget. And yes, have a monthly budget. You saw me smile because I'm like, oh, some are going to go, what's that? (laughs) Exactly. So the sooner you get the banks involved, the better, because you need to understand the process and don't let things happen too quickly for you. And then you end up 
at the 11th hour, you're looking at purchasing this practice, the closing date is set and the financing falls through. That's a nightmare. I can't imagine like that would be, that would make me break into a cold sweat. It would be a bad day. (laughs) It would be a very bad day. One young doctor I talked to, she bought a practice and she was tied to one bank because that's just where she'd always banked, her family banked. She got her loans through there and all of that. And when she went to buy the practice, her bank was not willing to work with her on that. It was a small bank. So she changed to a larger bank and worked with them. But because she didn't have that big history, she was telling me, and this is you know third party, she's telling me that she had a harder time getting a really good loan. Have you seen that? Is that something that they should be concerned with? If they're not happy with their bank at this time and they don't think they're going to be able to get a decent package, is that a reason to change banks? And this is just one case, but have you seen people switch banks to get better deals? What I recommend is that you go to at least three banks. Okay. You usually want to start off with one of the one of the larger banks. BMO Harris is an ADA approved is their endorsed lender, so we always start there. Any of the larger banks that have a big healthcare financing arm are going to be a great place to start. Now, I also recommend, and what we have seen is that, especially if you're going to purchase a practice in a smaller market, some of those banks in those smaller towns and the local banks will give you a fabulous deal. Oh, really? Yes. They want that practice to stay open. And I have seen interest rates. And I can't tell you where I saw this. <laughs> right around 1%. Wow. I mean, unbelievable. They wanted that practice to stay open so badly that number one, the doc is essentially giving the practice away. And then they're getting an amazing financing on it. This doc pays off the practice in less than My two goodness. years. Wow. So that's another incentive to go for a small to medium-sized town. You get to know the people and the banks are, I didn't even think about that, that these small banks would be, you know, frothing at the mouth to get you in there. Interesting. Oh, they are. And Chamber of Commerce, everybody, they want that dental practice to stay open so badly, they will do almost anything. I have seen them offering houses. I mean, it's unbelievable what you can get in a smaller town. One more reason to to go down that route. So if you're a big city person, that might be too big of a shock. But if you grew up in suburbia or, you know, small town, maybe that's appealing to get back to, you know, the way of life. But I do think the fact that there's going to be more remote workers, that's going to become the norm. I think that's going to change drastically the demographics. And I think, you know, exciting, like what you were saying, I think access to care is going to be helped a lot by this, this trend, which is, yeah, definitely exciting. Okay. So. I uh, got to get the banks in, in place. I've got to say one more yeah. thing just because I love this subject so much. <laughs> and that's that, you know, one of the big arguments is that we can't travel if we live in a small town. We're not near an airport. Well, do what one of my clients did. They make enough money. Buy a plane. I love it. Go get your flying license and get a plane. You can go anywhere you want. That's great. That's true. You know what? Aspen, Vail, they all have little little landing pads. So if that's your thing, you know, that's funny. I just can't believe it. Two years to pay off a practice. That's, I mean, that's a dream. You don't necessarily have to go DSO route then if you want to make big money. And, you know, they're, they're in the dental schools, you know, and, and I know quite a few DSO, so I'm not ragging on them or anything. It is what it is. It's a business model. They're very good at recruiting 
younger doctors coming out and basically making it sound like it's almost impossible for you to start your own practice. I mean, you said yourself, people were like, oh, it's too hard. You're not going to be able to do it. If they don't talk to anybody else other than DSOs, how are they going to find this information? What are you guys doing to get that information out to them? Well, we have a fabulous blog, number one. We do lunch and learns. We're very active with the state associations. We're very active with the American Student Dental Association. There is so much information out there, but as you stated, the DSOs are really good at getting in front of them and making them feel like they're like they don't have any options. Mm. And we're trying very hard to get the point across that you do have options. And I am also not one to, I'm not ragging on a DSO. Again, it's a business model. And I always say that the most important thing is not whether it's a DSO or a private practice or anything else, does the practice match your needs? Does it fulfill what you are trying to get out of this? So evaluate the practice incredibly carefully. Don't just jump in and say, oh, it's a DSO, so you know it's either bad or good, or oh, it's a private practice, it's bad or good. That's not the case. What you need to do is evaluate each practice based on what you're looking for. You know, an option that's out there that might be a little off the beaten path, but I'm gonna go ahead and throw it out there now because I'm having so much fun. <laughs> and that is what about some of these practices that the owners are all of a sudden saying, I want out of clinical dentistry? Because I'm hearing that from a number mm-hmm. of them. Me too. They don't want to deal with this anymore. They're, they're burned out. This whole 2020 threw them for a big loop. They want out of clinical dentistry entirely. But guess what? Their practice isn't one that can support two doctors. So a traditional bringing in an associate isn't really going to work for them. So think about this. What about you have an associate come into your practice? probably a newer grad, somebody who's only been out for a year or two, you're only working three days a week anyway. That younger doc is going to be able to do that same amount of production in five days that you're doing in three days. Mm. So if you're willing to just take a minimum salary, maybe you just keep, maybe you're just doing it because you want your health insurance to continue for another three or four years. Pay the associate to grow your practice. Be fair, set the purchase price up front, put all of the paperwork in order, put all of the paperwork in Mm. order, and I could say that about eight or nine times, (laughs) to go ahead and make sure that that sale happens in three to four years. Let Let the associate grow the practice. Let the associate make the decisions. You're there as an adjunct. You are not there to treat patients. You're there to help that dentist grow. Therefore, the younger doc gets the mentorship that they need. The owner doc gets to get out of clinical dentistry. And by the time the younger doc's been in there for a year, their time commitment's going to be minimal. So what a nice way to transfer out and into a practice. I like that. And I have been hearing it too. People are just, a lot of dentists are just not loving it. They're not loving the problems they've been having with staffing. It's been really hard to find good staff. And so that's where I hear this, you know, why am I even doing this? I'm stressed more because I can't find good people. If they had a good staff in in place, then they're not saying that, but the ones that are just frustrated and it's just a lot of change. I mean, even people who like change, this has been a lot of change. So it's hard. I I get it. So when you say get your paperwork in order, I thought about this. I hear quite often that you should have a letter of intent in place. Can you talk about what that is, first of all? and, And is that something that gets lost along the way? How impactful is it? Oh, Teresa, I'm so glad you brought that up. So glad you brought that up. The letter of intent or fondly termed an LOI 
is really the first step in purchasing the practice. After you have evaluated, you say, yes, I want to make an offer on this practice, you are going to deliver to the owner doctor a letter of intent. The letter of intent is designed to kind of set out the terms of the eventual purchase of the practice. During the time that the letter of intent is in force, which is usually a period of about 90 days or more, more it should be set, the owner should not be entertaining any other offers and the potential buyer should not be looking at any other practices. You're really making a commitment to seeing this one through. During the time that the letter of intent is in force, then you are going to, as the buyer, evaluate the practice further, make sure that you have your financing in order. You're going to make sure that the practice meets the home inspection. Mm-hmm. I kind of think about it as the home inspection I was going to say, time. it sounds like it's making, like making an offer on a house. It's very similar to that. Very similar. Now, let me tell you what I have seen. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A letter of intent in its ideal form will set out all of the terms of the asset purchase agreement at the end. It's going to set out the purchase price. It's going to set out the allocation of goodwill. It's going to set out the how the accounts receivable is going to be handled. It's going to set out the time frame involved, the closing date, the warranties. It's going to have all of the documentation that you need that's going to go into the final paperwork. When it's done poorly, and I have seen it written on a napkin, oh, geez. oh I think that I would like to purchase this practice for this amount. <laughs> Let's slide that across the table. What is this, Vegas? Like, come on. <laughs> Sometimes feels that way. Like, no, that is not the way a letter of intent should go. Because when a letter of intent is done well, it, again, it sets out all of the terms for the final asset purchase agreement. And it done well will set the roadmap for the entire process. Done poorly, things fall apart. And I have seen this happen, unfortunately, with a very dear friend of mine, the letter of intent was so poorly written that even the purchase price wasn't really set. The time frame was never set out. The allocations of goodwill were never set out. Nothing was taken care of in that letter of intent. That particular purchase fell through, but it took 11 months for it to even fall through because they kept kind of stringing each other along. Oh, wow. It was a very, very sad situation. Wow. You mentioned allocation of goodwill. Can you explain that? I'm sure a lot of audience listeners have not heard that term. Well, goodwill is essentially the majority of what your practice is worth. Your practice is If you look at it as hard assets, and if you want to call them soft assets, just to make it easy, your hard assets are going to be your equipment, your autoclave, your compressor, your, you know, iTero, your CBTT, whatever, whatever you have, those are your hard assets. And then you have your soft assets, which are your patients, your chart, the ability for that buyer to come in and have success within the practice by keeping those patients coming back for more. That is generally the majority of the value that you have in your practice. And in fact, it can account for up to 80%. Well, because if you lose a lot of those patients, if you're not warm and fuzzy, if they don't like you, that's a huge amount of just puff up and smoke, you know, the money. So I, I remember very (laughs) very fondly. One doctor I worked with was just not a fun person. He had 
you know, resting bitch face, just not a fun person. He was a great clinician. And he was like, you know, I just I need to make sure this this staff stays because I'm not good with people. (laughs) He knew it. He ended up actually giving them raises. I mean, he re-interviewed them, did all the stuff, but he actually gave them raises and was like, look, you guys need to be my warm and fuzzy. And it worked out really fine, but at least he knew that about himself. I'm sure there are doctors that don't realize that about themselves and that goodwill then becomes a huge liability. Have you seen that? I have. Unfortunately, I've seen it very close to hand. Um, There was a practice in an area that was very... This is, this is, by the way, just a friend of mine. This is not somebody that I worked with because I never would have tried to <laughs> facilitate this particular transaction. <laughs> Very good friend of mine had a practice in a small town or suburbia type area. It was a boutique type practice where the doctor is very, very touchy feely, I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Kind of a panky educated, very relationship based practice worked out of primarily three operatories. Practice was plumb for four, never found a reason for a fourth because things worked really well the way they were. Mm-hmm. Always an hour for hygiene, always spent the time. In fact, would spend, you know, five to 10 minutes sometimes per patient just because that's how they ran the schedule. And that was the way this practice functioned. After selling the practice, the buyers came in, and this particular buyer was one that came from a DSO type situation where. He was seeing, you know, 20, 25 patients a day, and he just wanted to practice in this particular location. He comes in, says, oh, yay, I'm going to, I'm going to add operatories. I'm going to make sure that I'm going to add in my PPOs. I'm going to do all of these things to make this practice as busy as I want. Well, guess what? There were a ton of other options in the neighborhood. All of the existing patients in the practice left. Oh, wow. Practice failed because there were too many practices that were like that in the area. So this very niche practice died. And unfortunately, that particular buyer ended up closing up shop, was not able to sell the practice because there wasn't anything left of it. Wow. And the owner ended up leaving the town because she said, I can't continue to run into my old patients at the grocery store. Oh, wow. It was a very, a very sad situation. Oh, what an awkward situation. I'm Mm. sure they had this, why did you leave me? And, you know, this new doctor, you left me with this guy or girl. Wow. That's mind blowing, though, because if you've got a good thing going, especially a niche practice, which you don't really see that much of anymore, honestly, it's become very standard what we see out there. A niche practice is, there are people that look for that. They seek that out. They don't want to go to everybody else's practice. It's just a different pace. So for them to want to change that to more of a cookie cutter is just, yeah, that's a massive fail. Somebody should have taken them out the back and said, look, what are you doing here? (laughs) Exactly. That's why we stress so much. And I've already said it, I think, three times during during this interview or podcast. You need to evaluate the practice very carefully. Even if the numbers look good, if the location looks good, you think, oh, yeah, that's it. That's it. No problem. You need to go into the practice. You need to carefully evaluate the systems of the practice. You know, make sure that it fits your personal style. If it does, fabulous, go after it. But if it doesn't, don't think you're going to come in there and be able to make massive changes right off the bat, especially if the patients have other options close by. You mentioned PPOs earlier, and I don't know if it happens still as much, but I remember when transitions became 
with the internet, everybody was talking about it, right? The interviews, dental town, all that kind of stuff. And everybody was talking transitions. I remember in my early consulting career, working with doctors who had bought based on one evaluation because it was based on a fee schedule that was pretty decent. They had been able to negotiate pretty good fee schedules. Then when they came on board, their fee schedules were not as generous. And so actually they overpaid for this practice. And I think the accountants or the the financial people that are involved, I think they caught onto that pretty quickly, but there is a bunch of doctors that did fall into that gap where we didn't realize how the insurance companies were going to go, no, you don't get that same fee schedule. Because it made sense that the fee schedule would stay, but it doesn't. Is that still something that's happening? Is that a buyer beware that you warn them about? Yes, we do. There are some states where there are insurance companies who will pay less to a new buyer, especially if they've graduated after a certain date. Okay. And that has become a huge, huge issue. And we recommend that you take a very close look at any and all fee schedules. You're, you, you should always evaluate when was the last time the fees were raised? Oh, yeah, that's a whole different topic. But right, mm-hmm. when was the last time? <laughs> exactly. When was the last time those fees were raised? What are the collections policies in the office? You know, what is your production as opposed to your adjusted production? Are you going to be able to maintain those fee schedules again to your point, or are they going to change as soon as you walk in the door? This should all be part of the due diligence process. You should not just take things at face value. You have to do a deep dive into these things. The other part of that too is the teams are completely confused because they also think that the fee schedules aren't going to change. And now all of a sudden they're dealing with a doctor who maybe isn't credentialed because they didn't move fast enough to get credentialed. They kind of thought the credentialing would convey. And I keep saying credentialing does not convey. It does not convey with the practice. You have to get going on that. Then they have patients who leave because of the change in participation status. And not only is the doctor blindsided, but the poor staff is just like, what is going on here? Everything was normal a month ago. And now like patients hate us and the phone's ringing off the hook. So for my managers out there that are listening to this, If your doctor even drops a hint that they want to get out soon or they're looking to start that transition, my doctor that I worked for is of a certain age. And so he's thinking about it too. You might want to bring that up, that this is a a big issue that they run into. Has it killed deals at any time? Have you seen that kill a deal or do they work through it? I have seen, I'm sorry, the staff issue? No, I'm sorry. The PPO, the valuation being so off. I have. I've seen it kill a deal or two, especially in these states where the insurance companies kind of have a real stranglehold on it. Yeah, unfortunately, that will happen because again, the owner doc is thinking this is what my practice is worth based on everything that I know with the collections and we're doing great. But they have to realize that a potential buyer who's not going to have that same fee schedule is going to need to have that price come down. And that's difficult for them to swallow. Of course, they worked so hard. They built it up. They did everything right. Yep. And then they find out that they they may have to lower the price or not, because you might find a buyer who doesn't care about that. They're not planning on being in network and, you know, they're looking to take it in a different direction. I mean, who knows? It's there's so many different options, like you said. Then let's talk about the staff because, you know, the team I shared with Suzanne before the podcast that, you know, I have friends who have called me and been crying because there's been a change. The owner sold and they weren't told until the morning of the sale. And now they're wondering, you know, now what do I do? You know, they haven't had resumes because they've worked with this doctor for a gazillion years. 
Now what? So do you have best practices for the team transition? Do you have any tips on that? I would go back to your example earlier where you said, if you are a staff person and you are getting the feeling that perhaps your doctor is thinking about backing out, maybe they're looking at selling the practice, have a conversation. Have a conversation with that doctor. Let them know that you want to stay. You want to let, you want this practice to survive. You want this practice to thrive. You want to help that transition happen in the easiest, most efficient way possible. Because who better than your staff to make sure that all of those little boxes are ticked? So you are, so that the incoming doctor is credentialed, so that the patients are somewhat prepared so that everybody's on board with this decision and the new doc can come in and seamlessly transfer into ownership. How much nicer is that than, good morning, everybody. It's time for morning huddle. Here's your new owner. I'm out. (laughs) And that has happened. If it sounds ridiculous, no, it's not. That has actually happened. And not only that, but you, the existing manager and existing hygienist, whatever, you you all have to re-interview for your position because there's a new office manual, hopefully, that takes place. There's new paperwork, hopefully, that goes on because it's a new it's a new day for all of this. Some of them find out that their salaries are affected negatively, which is I don't like that at all, but you know, it is what it is. Um and that usually is the kicker. That's the I gotta get out of here. I'm I'm un you know, they're ungrateful. They don't know everything I've done for the practice, all of that. But I think one thing dentists should really realize or the buyer should realize is that your team has way more FaceTime with the patients than you do. So that's FaceTime and talk time on the phone or whatever. And it's little things like, yeah, I know the old doctor used to do it that way, but now we got to do it this way. It's little conversations like that that set the tone and get patients wondering you know, is she happy here? Maybe there's something about this doctor that I, you know, he looks fine, but look at the way she's talking about him. It's little things like that that can really plant the seed that maybe this isn't the office for them anymore. And I I hope doctors get that. I hope they get that. I hope they do too. But they, I have seen the staff actively sabotage. And one of the ways that we have recommended a buyer to come in and get the staff on board is to actually sit down with the staff and do a joint treatment planning session, maybe with the owner. Let the staff see your thought process. Let the staff see that you are interested in delivering the highest quality care to those patients. Get them on board with your style and do it as quickly as humanly possible. Don't just assume that this is going to happen organically because Mm -hmm. it's not. You have to be proactive and do this. Once you have the staff on board, at least they'll give you a chance, even if maybe the finances don't allow you to have the same salary levels. But if you can get the staff on board, it makes it a little bit easier to maybe say, look, all right, I can't do this right now. This is why. And what I do want to do is make sure that, you know, we're going to put in some kind of incentives. Okay. You've seen where incentives have helped, like, First month I'm here, second month, 90 days, like something like that, like a a bonus of some sort? Some kind of a bonus, a lot of times based on, you know, how many patients did, were were we able to retain this month? Okay. If you're concerned about patient retention, get your staff incentivized to get patients back in the door. Why not? It's a win-win for everybody. That's great. Okay. So what about if the associate, or not the associate, but the purchaser, or maybe associate, brings their own staff? 
there's a mixing. I've worked with one office and it wasn't a long time that I worked with them, but one office where the teams were mixing, it was like a blended family situation. And it came with all of the issues blended families (laughs) usually come with. I mean, last I checked in with them, they were doing fine. They'd only lost one person, but that's a lot of change. Change in owner, change in... Is that something that's common or not so common? That is not nearly as common. Good. Thank God. (laughs) Thank goodness. Because as soon as you said that, I kind of turned green because that sounds horrible to me. (laughs) It would be very difficult. I sat in one of the team meetings and we were talking and it was like, you know, the Crips and the Bloods on two sides, you know, (laughs) looking at each other. It was terrible. Okay. So thank God that that's something that doesn't really happen. So with the bringing on of the associate, how long do they usually want to ease into purchase? I mean, is it a year, two years? I mean, is everything different? What what are the factors that go with that? Got to tell you, that is completely variable. There is no standard uh, that I have seen. We have so many docs that just want to walk away. And that's honestly, that's probably the easier Mm -hmm. one. If you're going to bring in an associate, you know, you've got to have the ability to support that associate. If you're going to have two doctors working full time simultaneously, you have to be able to, that associate is not going to want to be doing hygiene all day. (laughs) Can I just throw that out there to my owners right now? Please don't try to have that happen. Well, and owners, you should know that if you don't get them credentialed fast enough, that's really one of the only things that they can do ethically. And according to contracts. So yeah, there's a lot of associates that are thinking, I'm not going to have to do hygiene again now that I'm a doctor. And ooh, uh oh. <laughs> now that's not the way it works. Although I will say when I started my practice, I did my own hygiene for a year and a half. What a huge practice builder. Oh, yeah. I learned so much about my patients. We had and th- those were the ones that stayed with me. And so that's a good thing to think about. So let's put a, a positive it spin is. on this. If you are stuck doing hygiene. If you are stuck doing hygiene, make sure that you're taking that time to build those patient relationships because it will pay off in the end. I may have to talk to my doctor and tell him he needs to get back into the hygiene thing, at least for one day, just to have him do it. The joke in our office is you really don't want him cleaning your teeth because he's, you know, if it's not a laser, then you don't want him cleaning his teeth. And I think that's the case. It's it's like you don't want a medical, you don't want a physician to draw your blood because they haven't done it since medical school, right? So it's it's kind of the same thing. So doctors, yeah, maybe it's not a bad idea to kind of jump back in the hygiene chair every now and then see if you still got it, right? <laughs> well, they better at least know how to check your hygiene. <laughs> You better be able to find calculus because, oh my goodness. And you know, one thing about that is there's something that doctors don't take the time to do often. And it's because they're doing a million things. But if you find yourself with some downtime because of this credentialing or whatever, get on your software and teach yourself the ins and outs of the software. If you're sitting there and you have time, get on the software. That's one thing that I've seen owner dentists, they don't know how to run a report. And if you went to the software help site, everything's there for you. You just got to find the time to tinker with it. So if you have time, tinker with it because you're going to need that for so many reasons. Or if you have some downtime and you're looking for something to do, or maybe your staff isn't quite as busy as you would like, consider taking all of those paper charts and converting some of them electronic. Yeah. And then you get a flavor for the practice too. You kind of get an idea of what's Mm -hmm. going on, what the treatment plan style is. Because I think every doctor's going to say, oh, I'm progressive with my treatment planning. And you get in there and and there's like nothing but four surface amalgams everywhere. And you're kind of like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Yep. All right. Well, that's kind of fun to talk about. 
that whole 90 days after the transition, that might be another podcast episode to see like what goes wrong there. In our emails back and forth with Brie, who's uh, the assistant, she's wonderful, by the way. Shout out to Brie, who's probably listening. You are great. One of the things I told her that I wanted was some what to avoid. Like, what are the biggest mistakes that you've seen in this? And I know (laughs) Suzanne just made a face like, holy cow. (laughs) What are the big mistakes that you think could have been so easily avoided? Well, we've talked about a number of them already. I'm going to start off with if you're purchasing a practice, make sure that it is one that you can continue the same type of care for the patients. Your biggest assets are your staff and your patients. We've already talked about that. Make sure that there's continuity there because if the patients leave and the staff leaves, guess what? You don't have a practice anymore. You just threw out up to, you know, $800,000. Don't do that to yourself. It's not worth it. Find out whether you're compatible first and then do the deep dive into the financials and everything, but make sure that you evaluate the practice carefully. From the buyer's side, again, we alluded to it before, start lining up your financing now. Don't end up in that situation where you're at the 11th hour and everything has fallen through. Owners, let's talk about you for just a second. If you're looking at bringing on an associate, understand what that means. I had one doctor that was busy. Oh, yay. I'm, I'm so busy. It's time for me to bring on an associate because everybody told me that when you get to a certain level of production or collections, I should bring on an associate. Great. Yay. I'm going, well, I shouldn't do it yet because I don't really have the space for that associate. All right, great. I'm going to create this whole huge, beautiful office, 12 operatories, and I'm going to bring in the great associate. Bring in your great associate and guess what you find out sometime. You don't like that. What you really loved was your little four-op practice. It fit your style perfectly. Yes. Yes, you were busy. I get it. You were so busy that you were, you know, running around, you know, on roller skates. Cut out some of those PPO plans. Go fee-for-service. Do something to make that practice style work for you. So understand yourself before you're looking at any kind of transition in any career whatsoever Make sure you understand yourself, make sure that you understand what your strengths are, and make sure that you understand, especially for dentists, Mm -hmm. because let's face it, we total control freak. (laughs) I would never say that. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. I could say it. I'm one of them. You know, if you know that you can't give up control of the patient's treatment plans, or you know that, you know, Susie's going to come in and she's been your patient for 30 years, and there's no way that younger doc is going to know what to do with Susie, guess what? maybe you shouldn't bring on an associate. So think through who you are, think through what's important to you and make decisions based on that. Understand your vision and then go for it. Jump in. Don't let anybody tell you you can't or shouldn't do something. Nobody should ever tell you that. You just said, you know, know your style. And some people are like, well, I think I want to be this practice, you know, two locations, three locations, whatever. Before COVID, I noticed and consultant colleagues did too, that there was this feeling that a doctor, a newer doctor, younger doctor especially, needed to acquire a second and a third location in order to feel successful. It was like this train that was on, it just wasn't stopping. There was this trend. Everybody wanted to become the next big you know, DSO or multi-location. And one positive thing about COVID is I think it stopped some people from making big mistakes because not everybody should be a multi-owner multi-location owner, there are a lot of people that can't get one location straight for a few years. They have to, I mean, managing is not easy. Being a 
the human resources piece, everything. I mean, you're being a CEO of really millions of dollars and they don't think of it that way. So when you go on this train, I mean, I just saw so many people doing it. And now I see people going, okay, you know what? It is kind of nice to work with the small staff, or maybe I just want to grow this location and be happy. It doesn't feel like to me that we're now on this, I must conquer my dental space. I just get that feeling now. I, I feel like it's shifted, which is for me, a good feeling. I agree with you that we need to make sure that our, our doctors understand what it means to have multi-locations. And it goes back to what I just said with the, with the doctor who built out this huge, beautiful practice and then found out that, hey, this really wasn't his style. There are certain states and regions within states that that is really, really prevalent. Mm -hmm. And I am still seeing that. We are still seeing a lot of these opportunistic dental conglomerates that are really trying to come and consolidate. And while I, I agree with consolidate to reduce your overhead, that's all great. Just make sure that you understand the business side. Of right, it. right. This is a business when you start doing that. You become more a business person than a clinician, which is fine if that's what you mm -hmm. want. But if you are really one of those, you know, 98% clinician and 2% business people, that's not probably the best route for you. Yeah. There's a lot of owners who hire really great practice managers, which of course is something I advocate. If you don't want to do the business, that's the next step. I mean, you can outsource your human resources, you can outsource your payroll, but when it comes to managing the employees and schedules and all of that, if you don't want to do it, hire somebody that can do it and can be your right hand. And I hope that if there's a manager sitting here listening, thinking, oh my gosh, this sounds exactly like my doctor, we're going to go through a transition. Don't freak out because if you have good business knowledge and you've been a good manager, you're going to be so valuable to that practice. You'll, you'll be just fine. Yeah. And in fact, what I've seen is some of these uh, manager friends of mine who, who've gone through a transition have actually started helping other managers with transitions and expecting. So there's a little bit of a consulting niche out there for that. Okay. So say I, I, my doctor calls up ADA practice transitions. How many people am I working with? Am I working with a practice evaluator? Am I working with a lawyer? I mean, how many people am I working with? The primary person that you're going to work with is going to be your advisory team. And that's usually two or three people. Okay. Oh, that's manageable. Yes, absolutely. And each one has their niche. This is really a digital experience for the most part. We're a digital matching service and we base our matches on that whole philosophy of care point. We know that that is really what's going to lead to long-term long success for our docs. If you come into a practice and you can maintain the staff and the patients, you're going to be happy. The staff's going to be happy. The patients are going to be happy. And guess what? You're going to be successful and make money. Perfect. So that, that's the premise that we start with. Most of what we do occurs in a digital platform. So you will get your you know, suggested candidates via email and all of that's happening. They're, the candidates are curated behind the scenes by the advisor who's there as a resource and a help. We also have a ton of information that lives on our site. Once you submit your profile and you know, kind of get into that whole matching pool, we have a ton of information, including you know, self-assessments so that you understand your situation really clearly. Oh, that's great. We want our doctors to be educated and informed and so that they can look at their situation and say, oh, yeah, I'm in a great situation. This is perfect. Or maybe they look at it and they can say, ooh, maybe <laughs> I, you know, I haven't updated my fee schedule in six years. <laughs> And it's something maybe I should look right. at, or, you know, I live in a town of 500 people versus I live in, you know, suburbia. 
you know, all of these different factors that come into play. Do I have an integration plan for an associate? Do I have the space for one? Will they have a little bit of personal space if they need time to decompress after a really bad procedure or tough procedure? What's my plan? All of these things come into play and we want our docs to be educated before they find that person. The other thing that we have available for our docs is access to real estate professionals, mergers and acquisitions specialists who can help you're having trouble finding financing. They can help with that. So we really have a whole team. You will always need your own lawyer. Okay. Always. Hands down, if anybody tells you you don't need a lawyer, I would go find somebody else to talk to. Okay, that's great information. Okay, good. And that's across the board. There's there's this misconception out there that if you use one of the practice broker, that you're not going to need a lawyer. Well, I used a practice broker and guess what? I had a lawyer look over my contracts because they are not lawyers. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that all those I's are dotted and those T's are crossed. So no matter what, you need a lawyer. And listeners, you may remember a couple months ago, I interviewed Natasha Gillis, who's a DC. I'm in the DC area. She's a DC area lawyer. And she talked about exactly this, that even she's not a broker. She doesn't even pretend to, but she wants to look at that contract to make sure that you're protected. So go back and listen to that if, if that piques your interest. It's a subject that comes up repeatedly, you know, oh, well, if I use you, then I don't need to have a lawyer. Yes, you do. I don't care who you use. You need a lawyer. Yeah, this isn't the time to start like pinching the pennies. This is this is big no, stuff. You need to don't. be worried about this. Yes. And I told you we were going to go long. I knew we were going to have a good talk. <laughs> but I have one last question. I am curious, how recent of an evaluation should the buyer be looking at? Is it two years old, one year old? I mean, how how recent does that matter? Let's take COVID out of it because COVID was a complete outlier. But in regular times, how recent does that evaluation have to be? In regular times, if it's within the last two years, it's usually going to be at least a very good starting point. You'll still have to have all of your current financials, but at least the valuation itself might not have to be redone if it's two years old. But that's pre-COVID. Everything got thrown off. So everything now got to be recent. So getting a recent evaluation is really critical to doing this deal now, especially in in light of COVID is what you're saying? Yeah, because the buyer is going to need to take that to their lending institution so that they can get that loan through underwriting. And the more recent the valuation is, the better. Okay. Now, if you don't have a valuation, not the end of the world. Make sure that you have all of the paperwork in order that would normally go into evaluation, your last five years financials, a up-to-date equipment list, all of the included and excluded assets. Have everything together in a nice little binder or on a flash drive so that you can hand that to the buyer and say, this is what I want from my practice. Here's the documentation to back it up. Now, there's probably going to be some back and forth. As there should, there should always be room for negotiation. Sure. Always. So you don't necessarily have to have a pricey valuation done. Okay. So, but that's good advice because that is something you don't want to look at a five year old evaluation. We can wrap it up. I have one funny story to tell you. I was working with a spouse, a doctor, and his spouse was working in the practice and they sold the practice and they put it in the contract because the buyer was insisting on this that the spouse stay on because she was managing, that the spouse stay on for at least six months to ease the transition. 
And part of the back and forth, the owner doctor was teasing, you know, this is my wife is not an asset to be counted, you know, in the practice. And they were, of course, on good terms. And she did end up staying because she wanted it to succeed as well. When you said assets, you know, transferable or not, I thought, oh, wow. (laughs) She probably didn't think of herself as a transferable asset at that time. (laughs) Actually, I have have that exact same situation going on right now. You're kidding. Oh, that's so funny. It's more common, apparently, than you think. I thought it was a little odd, too. But yes, the buyer said, I need this person to stay. Didn't (laughs) care if the dentist stayed. Right. (laughs) In fact, didn't want the dentist to stay. But it's like, no, 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 I've got to have you here. <laughs> so funny. One of the jokes was the the wife was like, look, he's going to go on vacation. He's leaving now. I have to stay and work for you. And again, it was all in good fun. But the doctor did leave after two months. He went down and, and found their retirement home and she was stuck working. It, it was comical. She had a good time with it, but she was ready to leave at the end of six months. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll I'll prepare that spouse for that scenario. Yeah, your spouse may, you know, hit the road before you're done. (laughs) Oh, goodness. All right. So I'm going to put your contact information in the show notes, but also a link to the blog. I was running through that before we got on and there is there's some really good information on there. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I want to thank you for coming on. I appreciate the information that you've given. Teresa, this was so much fun. I had I had just had a great time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad. Yes. And we're going to do this again. I really want you to come back, you know, maybe once a year and just give us an overview of the market, see what's going on out there. That's the kind of stuff I want to bring because, you know, the name of the podcast is Nobody Told Me That. So I don't want anyone saying, nobody told me that we're going to have to do this when the practice transition. <laughs> That's what I'm going for. All right, dear listeners, as always, I am so thankful that you spend your time with me. We're all super busy, so thank you for making time for me today. The show notes will have any links that we referenced in this episode. You can also find links for my book and for my live events and webinar schedule. I speak often around the country on management and insurance issues. Come hang out with me in one of my classes. I promise you'll laugh and learn.